So if you're new to Dharma Pons, uh welcome. This will be a slightly unusual um, first class in this, if you're new because um, for a number of reasons. One, I'm at the end of a series on uh, the different ways to attain uh, liberation and uh, what the Buddha called a state of uh, the end of suffering or profound states of inner peace. And um, tonight's talk is going to be about probably the most uh, difficult to understand of all the uh, the approaches to enlightenment. So uh, if you're new, don't get scared. If this one flies over your head, uh, just know that most of the time the talks are very concrete, <laughs> just about how to end uh, uh, anxiety, stress, worries, fears. But um, I'm finishing up a series and. Uh, this talk of all the talks is probably as heady and uh, abstract as it gets, so hopefully uh, you'll follow along, but if you don't, don't worry about it. It doesn't mean uh, that um, uh, this path is uh, too uh, mystical. So um, we've covered different approaches to and achieve really lasting states of quietude in the mind. The final state um, is based on what is called shunyata. And um, it's a word that doesn't really have any terrific translation. Uh, like all Pali words in the Buddha is recorded, his teachings are recorded in Pali, Pali was a language that had very, very few words, and so the words in Pali tended to have a lot of different meanings, unlike English, which has, I don't know, perhaps uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of words, so the words can become pretty specific and concrete. In Pali, the words were very, very open-ended. For example, um, words like dharma, the teaching, the truth, the unvarnished experience um, can have so many meanings. And shunyata means so many different things at once. In fact, uh, in the Buddha's teachings, it was defined in three different ways. And there are, in fact, in these three different definitions, each of the three definitions describes three different ways that this uh, teaching can be used to achieve lasting peace. So, the three definitions of shunyata, which literally means a void or an absence, but um, it's most commonly used to mean either emptiness or nothingness or a sense of tracelessness, like a, 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 a body of water that doesn't have any waves on it or any disturbance. So, uh, emptiness, nothingness, and a state of non-disturbance. Um, so, it's a pretty advanced, and the reason I saved it for the last of the talks in this series is because it's actually the state that is pretty much the last meditative state uh, before enlightenment and many uh, descriptions of the path. And the Buddha 
only really acknowledge his most advanced students as uh, being making use of shunyata as a meditative tool. Um, when he was asked, um, the Buddha said that towards the end of his his life he dwelt in shunyata. He dwelt in a place of uh, nothingness, emptiness, and lack of disturbance. This is an interesting, uh, if you're new to meditation and you're new to hearing the Dharma talk, this is actually sort of a paradoxical first talk for you to hear because, um, frankly, uh, most of the time I spend these talks encouraging people not to believe that meditation requires giving up thinking. Most, many meditations involve thinking. In fact, uh, many of the paths to Enlightenment, the Buddha talks about the role of thought plays, and um, this is the probably the only the only approach really that emphasizes uh, a, a state of attaining no thought. So uh, this falls into sort of the almost uh, uh, cliché. Uh, mystical quality of teachings, but uh, it doesn't have to be that way. It's actually understandable. So, um, the three, I defined it in three ways, and that's based on uh, a really rare sutta by a a little-known monk named Godata, who pretty much defined shunyata in those terms of nothingness, emptiness, and uh, without disturbance. And uh, I read a bit of it last night. I'll just read the key to it. Um, The nothingness is described by that monk as when one has attained awareness of consciousness itself or the mind itself and notes that there's nothing there, that it's just an ongoing experience. The definition of... uh, this meditative path on emptiness is when one in solitude sees that there's no inner self or no identity that can be determined. And the final, the state of without disturbance or tracelessness is when one is in a state where nothing is disturbing someone. So they all sound really kind of similar. Uh, But they're actually, um, I can actually uh, separate them. I'm going to talk about one in particular. So, the meditative state on not finding an inner identity. Most of the time, we tend to take our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions very personally. When we have a thought, it's my thought. When we have a mood, it's my mood. Why am I so angry? Why am I so pissed off all the time, why am I so fearful, why am I so, uh, I can't meditate, I'm a, I'm too edgy, nervous, filled with thoughts, I, I'm to this, I'm to that, and, um, so whatever we identify with, we tend to limit ourselves with, it's, identity is a, is basically a, um, it's a, it's a ball and chain, essentially. It's something that limits us. I was years and years and years ago with, uh, in a yoga class where a woman said that, oh, I can't do um, backbends. 
to the teacher she told that. The only issue was she was actually doing a backbend when she said it, but she was so convinced that she, her identity was enabled to do that, that she lived in that story. Um, I had a, a client I worked with about seven or eight years ago, and he was somebody that would call up and just say, you know, always, I'm, I'm such an angry person. Uh, and all of us know anger and frustration, but sometimes we really believe that's who I am. At my core, I'm anger. Or at my core, the real me is, is anxious or worried or, or the real me is scared of people or whatever. So he, was, he determined that his core identity was anger because whenever he experienced anger, it felt so intense to him. And it felt, because it felt so intense, he believed that it was somehow indicative of his core inner truth. That's who I am. And I would point out throughout those conversations that, well, are you angry right now? And when I'd ask that question, he wouldn't be. Of course, I would pick the moment. I'd, I'd pick a moment after I made him laugh or something. And he'd go, no, well, of course, I'm not angry right now. And so the point is, is that if we're not a state all the time, then it, it's not our lasting identity. It's just a tendency. And the difference between a tendency and an identity is huge. If I, for instance, think of myself as a, uh, uh, a cranky person, which I'm generally not, but if I did consider myself to be a cranky person, if I identify with that when I'm ever in a situation where I don't know what to do and I've established that as an identity, I'll go towards it. I will think, oh yeah, that's who I am. I, we gravitate <clears throat> towards that which we've established as, you know, indicative of ourself. We feel obligated to protect and present ourselves in, the, in terms of these stories. But if it's just a tendency, then I have a choice. I don't have to be cranky. I don't have to be fearful. I have actually a choice before I, at the arising of that energy of crankiness or fear, I can remind myself it's just a tendency, and if I focus on the things that don't create fear or crankiness, remembering times of peace, reflecting on people I care about, etc., then it will dissipate. So it's very, very liberating to let go of this belief of a lasting core identity. Uh, it's very antithetical to, to our, our society. So much of the world around us says that we're supposed to be spending our lives finding our true self. Find yourself. Do you know who you are? Did you leave yourself behind? Where are you now? <laughs> Sounding like George Carlin. Like a George Carlin routine. Uh, <coughs> but anyway... Uh, Actually, even though we like to believe that there's this inner core, true, lasting identity, um, it's actually quite enslaving. Now, there's a difference between believing in a core identity and believing that we have authentic uh, uh, truths that are not performative. We all have authentic um, uh, interests, and feelings, and very often we hide these these uh, spontaneous feelings from other people, and we become we engage in what psychologists call false selves. 
But simply because there's such a thing as a false self, which is a performance we put on to get love from other people, doesn't mean that lurking in there, there's a true self that can't change. So uh, just know that while we can have authentic, real, spontaneous feelings, behaviors, interests, that doesn't mean that they really create a lasting core identity. And it's an important distinction because, once again, the more we spend time defining ourselves, trying to figure out who we really are, we don't do ourselves any favor with these stories. We actually tend to uh, uh, limit ourselves. And even sometimes if the stories we tell of ourselves sound really terrific, we limit ourselves. For instance, some people love to defect, define themselves as survivors. <clears throat> I'm a survivor. I've had it tough, but I came through. <laughs> Give me that Gloria Gaynor. I will survive. <laughs> Don't remember that? No, too, too. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not, uh, there's nothing wrong with, with feeling proud of one's uh, ability to develop um, uh, steadfastness and to keep uh, attempting to find love in life and support, but defining ourselves around being a victim or a survivor or a uh, a um, uh, any of the states that people tend to rally around to try to find motivation actually it distorts our perception. We very often, if we define ourselves as a victim or a survivor, we don't allow ourselves to see the harm we cause to other people. We feel entitled to act selfishly at terms, and we don't see how we push people away or we recreate these victimization um, roles and identities. So once again, uh, one of the ways to achieve a real state of peace, the Buddha said, was to experience everything not as a core self or a lasting identity. Just view every thought you have, every uh, feeling state, every body sensation, everything you experience, don't take it personally. Just know that it is something that's arising and passing, but it doesn't have to present a lasting you. Now, the second approach was... Um, the mind without disturbance, and I'm just going to dwell on this briefly. Um, in Buddhist thought, there's two kinds of action. There's skillful action and there's unskillful action. Skillful action tends to bring about, in essence, states of lasting peace and harmony in our lives, a sense of acceptance. It doesn't guarantee cash or prizes. There's nothing that doing... Um, real works of compassion with self and others, kindness, appreciation, uh, really loving the people that we're close to, caring about the suffering of others. You're probably in this world not going to win a lot of cash and prizes for that, but you will live and dwell in a mind that's very peaceful in the future. As the Buddha said, even if there is no... Um, life after this one, and that's right, the Buddha didn't insist that people believe in rebirth or reincarnation or anything like that. He left it totally up to each practitioner and acknowledged that many people didn't believe it. I happen to be agnostic on the issue. But um, even 
the Buddha said, even if we don't have another life, another existence after this one, if we act out of peace and compassion and love and care, then in the future, he said, our minds will be without agitation. We won't be disturbed. And so the corollary is the more selfish we act, the more defensive, the more guarded, the more aggressive, the more we dwell in minds that in the future are agitated. They're like water stirred up. And uh, in fact, the Buddha used that very analogy that anger, defensiveness, is like creates like water boiling. And um, so this is observable in our experience. In our day-to-day life, when we do something that's... You ever notice like the good thoughts, they only come up once? Maybe I should call my friend. They sounded kind of down. But then the selfish ones, they come up a gazillion times. (laughs) Fuck that. (laughs) Everybody everybody steals pens from work and thinks, Mm -hmm. you know, and... uh, Whatever. uh, I can't think. can't even think. You know, uh... It was just a little lie, just to get out of a difficult. I didn't really want to see the person, so I just made up a little lie. You know, it's okay. Well, I don't want to have to deal with them, and I don't want to tell the truth that I just don't want to see them. So, so when we, when we, get caught up in pushing people away, not representing the truth, um, causing harm, what happens is what the Buddha called patancha. The mind becomes stirred up and agitated. On the other hand, when we act out of kindness, honesty, but not the kind of honesty, I really think you're a schmuck, and I just want you to know that that's not the honesty we're talking about. Um, but an honesty that's, that's not harmful, uh, a kind of uh, compassion, then afterwards you'll know that when you do something that you really, is really esteemable, the mind feels pretty quiet. Uh, this is not also just some pseudo-spiritual uh, uh, belief. This has actually been documented by um, study after study after study. One of my favorite studies, which I quote a lot, so if you've heard this before, I hope you'll bear with me, but in a book of uh, clinical studies on what creates lasting happiness by Jonathan Haidt, a book called Happiness Hypothesis, he talks about a study where they gave... Uh, Students, um, like $10, $20, I don't remember. And the instructions to half were to give the money away and the other half to spend it on yourself. And six months later, none of the people who spent it on themselves could remember how they spent it. There was no boost in self-esteem. They literally had no memory of the entire incidents very often. But um, the people who were asked to give it away not only could remember the event, but they still six months later felt a real boost of self-esteem that they had given them money away. Even though that money was given to them, they still feel good about themselves. They could remember in detail the feeling of the original uh, event and how good they feel, and they could feel they felt good even recounting the episode. So, uh, and there, this book is filled with example of example of example when we act out of compassion how the mind feels more peaceful, but when we act out of aggression or defensiveness, fear, uh, suspicion, doubt, we tend to 
not only isolate ourselves from others, which is uh, really harmful, but we also live in agitated minds. So the, 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 the long of it is the more we um, live in a state of, uh, of acting as much as we can from uh, virtue rather than harmfulness and concentrate the mind, that's another way to lasting peace. The final one is the state of nothingness. And uh, this is the one I like the most because it's perhaps the most abstract and uh, I think in ways the most philosophically profound. In life, uh, there are times when we become really aware of, of absence, of something going away. I was once in Chinatown. I made the mistake of going to Chinatown during Chinese New Year, which is fun once in your life. But as a New Yorker, you think I would learn this. I've been here all my life, and you know, or for much of my life. And I made the mistake of going down there uh, a, a year ago, and I got trapped in this absolutely claustrophobic throng of people where there was literally that sense of, you know, if, if anything went wrong, that you could be very easily crushed to death. And, you know, I, I'm six feet tall, but I couldn't see uh, literally two feet ahead in any direction. And I, I, um, it was this feeling of just being completely surrounded. And I remember the feeling of finally navigating myself to a side block, and that feeling of, you know that feeling of, oh, when you, you know, you're stuck in traffic, and so there's so much tension building up in the body, this feeling of frustration in the mind, this story of being hemmed in, and then when suddenly the traffic disperses, and it's just people, you know, rubbernecking some, you know, minor thing on the side, and then suddenly the road opens up, and there's space, and there's freedom to move, so the absence of, of busyness, the mind following, uh, is this really, really peaceful state. Uh, another example is um, uh, pain. If you've ever had really, 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 really bad pain, um, and then it goes away, and you, we live in the state afterwards of um, the state of, even though we're in neutrality, we're not particularly feeling uh, great. We might, not, we might even be a little tired. But the absence of pain then just becomes this great, huge, liberating ease. So experiencing an absence of quiet is one of the most profoundly uh, beautiful states. Uh, another version, and perhaps what this most refers to, is that time in life when we go through a really, really... Um, here's an example. Uh, last night, uh, it wasn't too bad, but last night I uh, thought I lost my wallet. <laughs> As actually somebody who I will not... <laughs> somebody put a a thing of bananas on top of my wall. <laughs> and so I, I left the house and taught a class, and I realized at the end of the class that I didn't have my wallet. And I was in that state of, where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? All the thoughts, 
you know, oh, my, I'm going to call them credit companies. And then I remembered, oh, this will pass, this will pass, this will pass. Spiritual person, spiritual person, guy that talks about the Buddha, can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was around people, so I was being really, you know, like, really Buddhist-y about it. But you, gotta, you can't be too afraid, you know, they're like, okay, that guy's full of shit. I'm the Buddha, but one little losing as well. I'd look, he's like falling apart, so no, you can't do that. You have to, you have to put on this big set of Buddhist smile, oh, it's okay, in German. It's all gonna pass, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's like, nee, 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 nee. you know, I, I, uh, you know, I, I know I had uh, information from people that I w- was going to call up. Blah, 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 blah. It's gonna be the pain in the neck. Blah, blah, blah. And then I got home and I looked after of of agitated search. I looked under the banana, <laughs> and there it was. <laughs> <laughs> and that state of ease, oh, I don't have to think about this shit anymore. Oh, this is so great. You know, and then the body relaxes because I don't have to carry the story around. All of the dramas, all of the stories we carry around, all of the narratives, they take a toll. Each narrative in our life requires what the Buddha called Vedan, a physical underlying stress. Everything we have to pay attention to. Everything your mind follows and keeps a narrative. Oh, I wonder how my mother's doing. I wonder how my friend's doing. Oh, I wonder how that person's doing. Oh, it's work again. Oh, I forgot I said I would go to this thing. Oh, my God, I didn't do that. Oh, it's all. It's all releasing dopamine, acetylcholine, adrenaline, cortisol. So every, every component in our life, every narrative stream that we live in. We all live in these various streams, our our ten year plans, if, you know, our get through the week plans, our to do list today, the things we'd like to do. We all have these narratives that are overlays in our life. And the more we focus on people, ideas, storylines, the more the mind is agitated. And so what we want to do is get to a place where we can actually in life begin to appreciate times of quiet, the times where we're not attached to any thought pattern. It doesn't mean that those thoughts will disappear. In fact, I can guarantee you they won't. There's nothing more frustrating than expecting that, you know, I, I'm going to pick up this meditation thing because it's really going to get rid of that fear or obsession. It won't get rid of it. What it will do is give you the option of not paying attention and clinging to it. You can actually, it turns out, be with fear, be with different narratives, be with things in your life that you want to accomplish, but you don't have to attach to them and get bent out of shape and all worried and um, uh, fixated by them. We can keep the mind much bigger. And this brings up the path of exactly how we do this. God, I can spiel out words. I think that was just like... <laughs> like 20 minutes without a fucking breath. Or <laughs> I love this stuff, but my God. Uh, I was holding my key for like 10 minutes waiting for... <laughs> what, to my mind, would be a natural pausing space. Uh, so, um, 
So the way the Buddha uh, taught is uh, one way to get to that peace of, uh, is rather than focusing on the, the silence between thoughts, which is very difficult to do, the analogousness to that would be like just focusing on the negative part, the negative space in the painting. You ever hear of negative space mm-hmm. in art? You know, So that's the part that's not the object, the portrait of the person. It's the sort of the, 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 the soft paint in the background that doesn't have an object in it. That's negative space. And so um, trying to just focus on just the space between thoughts is like trying to just look at the painting without looking at the person in it. It's just looking at the soft space behind it. You're not really going to do that. Um, what the key to attaining this this uh, nothingness is actually to have the mind paradoxically focused on everything, so that the mind doesn't become really compact and small, and just fixate on one thing. That's how we cause suffering in our lives. For example, um, if you're at a party. And you're, there's, it's a big party. You just walk in. There's all these people. There's all this music. It's huge. Look at this room. There's weird hands on it. Oh, wow. And then you see your ex. And then suddenly the room disappears. And all the people disappear. And it's just the ex. And you. There they are. I really don't like them. I don't know why they're making this sound, but it's like it's like a X laser, it's like sonar. There they are. And so, by contracting the mind around the size of one thought or one perception or one person, the mind becomes really, really, really uh, agitated, uncomfortable. But if the mind is spacious, if that's just one person walking around and you still see all the people and you're still engaged in the conversation with the person you just met and you're still, you know, looking at the, I don't know, what, hors d'oeuvres they're serving at this party? Okay, they're serving hors d'oeuvres and uh, I can put anything I want in here. It's my imagination. So they have hors d'oeuvres. They have uh, little pita bread vegetarian things. And, oh, look at that. That's great. So we're not suffering, even though our the X is moving around the party. That the Buddha said that if we put a, a teaspoon of poison in a, in this cup and I drink it, I'll die. But if we put a teaspoon of poison in a reservoir the size of a huge lake, it doesn't poison anything. We can still drink from that lake. It's the same thing with the mind. When the mind becomes really small and contracts around the thought, loses touch with everything else, if I lose touch with, um, uh, you know, um, things that are going well in my life, if I lose touch with uh, times of virtue, people, suppose somebody does something that's really painful, doesn't return a call, or, or uh, uh, I'm disappointed, if I dwell on that story, I'll suffer. If I push it away, it won't work. I'll still suffer. But if I allow that story to be there, acknowledge it, and then fill up my mind with everything else that's available to me, noticing the feeling of the body, noticing the touch of the ground, noticing uh, all the other narratives that I could bring in without attaching to anything, notice 
the, all the senses that are available, if I don't allow the mind to contract, if I just allow everything to happen without focusing in on the disappointments of life, then I can dwell in a kind of uh, nothingness because I'm not attaching to anything. I'm aware, but I'm not attaching. In the Buddha's teaching, this state is called neither perceiving nor not perceiving. You're aware, but you're not focusing in on the story and then adding all the thoughts and the agitations, the aversions. Why is this happening? Why are they so mean to me at work? Why did that relationship break up to me? Break up? Why did that that uh, roommate do that awful thing? Why did you know, is it so cold outside all the time? Why is it, you know... When we don't contract, then we don't add agitation and we don't have that kind of suffering. So the way to this lasting state, this third approach to peace, is paradoxically to fill the mind with as many different sensations as once without allowing the mind to... Uh, collapse or shrink. And that's exactly what this meditation is going to teach. So find the most comfortable seat you can. And for the sake of this meditation, we're going to close the eyes, but if you want to try this... Uh, with your eyes open and look at the ground in front of you, this is actually one of the more appropriate meditations to do that as well. So whatever you feel like doing, if you want to look at... But again, the key is we're not allowing attention to focus in on any one thing. So try to look at uh, the ground or something that's very uninteresting or where there's no movement. So first, just become aware of the sounds that are going on, especially the background sounds. While it's very easy to hear my voice, it is more <clears throat> requires more effort and persistence to actually hear the background sounds of the room, the sounds of perhaps... Uh, Sounds from the street and slight sounds that people are making and the ambient sounds of the room. Now when we don't get lost in thought, it's very easy to just sit and listen. We don't have to go and search of sounds they arise. So it's actually very peaceful to receive sounds, and not only that, sounds don't require us to have any adding. We don't need to add any stories, any 
opinions. There's no right or wrong sound going on right now. Creates a sense of space to the mind. Sounds, if we take in the fullness of the room, see if you can hear the most far away sound from the left. And then swing the mind all the way to the right ear and hear the most far away sound to the right. And then get the feeling of being in a horizon of sound spanning from left to right. So while keeping the sense of sound, creating a inner environment or landscape, then begin to add in all the sensations of touch and body sensations. So the contact we're making with the cushion, feeling of hands resting on legs or hands touching hands, clothes and body. The feeling of body sensations, sensations of warmth or coolness, the pulses, if you feel the blood moving through the body. See if you can let go of the need to file these sensations under inside or outside as in what's inside the body or outside the body. In fact, if you can let go of any visual you have 
of the body, of how you look, and just allow these sensations from the leftmost sensation that you feel to the rightmost sensation, from the top of the head down to the ground. Allow these sensations just to create also a sense of space for the mind. Don't get caught up in visuals that are not present. And just allow the awareness to move now. Don't keep it up in the absolute center where you might feel the eyes are. See if you can begin to roam through all the sounds and physical sensations. So you no longer have an exact sense of being absolutely in the middle, if possible. Moving awareness, drifting awareness amidst all the sounds, all the sensations. now bring into awareness of all these sensations, all these sounds, an awareness of the breath occurring, <coughs> feeling that shift, that rhythmic moving in and out. Encouraging the out-breath to be as long and smooth as possible. Not letting go of sounds. Still dwelling in sensations. But also aware now of the breath. The movement of sensations. The feeling of expansion, the feeling of release.
Now bringing into all this awareness, an awareness of the mind that's been observing all these events, can you know if the mind's been jumpy or tired? Has it been accepting of all the sensations or rejecting? now add or allow any mental events that want to pass through the mind, whether they're images or memories or thoughts, just allow them all to pass through. when we do, we keep the mind spacious and wide, so we're hearing all the sounds, feeling all the contact and the body sensations, knowing when the breath is going in or out, aware of the mood and energy level of the mind. It's as if we're suddenly dropped in a completely new universe, <coughs> not taking anything personally, not latching on to anything at all, as if awareness has suddenly slightly pulled slightly away from all the events that are going on. So there's this slight sense of we're just observing, but we're not participating in anything. Just watching all of the mind unfold, knowing that there's nothing solid in the mind. It's all just an ongoing series of events or ongoing series of representations. The mind never stops. It's a parade that goes on and goes on and goes on. So don't latch on to anything. Just let each element of the parade move through. Taking in the fullness of the experience. 
when we hear these sounds, rather than resist or add any sense of something's wrong, just say yes in the mind. This is happening too. Still keeping the mind aware of the sensations, the, the feeling of the ground. Everything is allowed. Nothing is resisted. Finding the body and just relaxing all the sensations, all the contacts, and then keeping the mind spacious, allowing everything to pass through. When you're ready, let's begin the process of bringing in sight into awareness. The beautiful thing about this meditation is we really don't have to do very much other than to prepare enough space in the mind for the sight to be allowed in. But see when that time comes if you can maintain awareness of the breath, feelings of touch, body sensations, the mood of the mind, the background sounds, everything that's going on. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes.